Welcome to A Correction Podcast. I'm your host, Lev Moscow. And today, we're really excited to be joined by Shirsti Yadav, instructor at the Department of Economics at the University of Manitoba. Thank you so much, Lev. I'm so glad to be here. I invited you on the show today because I was really excited after reading your article on developing economics a blog called Agrarian Change in the Lap of Neoliberal Growth, Field Perspective from India. So the show's been going on for uh, about five years now, I think. We've talked a lot about neoliberalism. And um, what I think what might be interesting, I'm, I'm interested in, is um, so India, like the rest of the world, I guess, is going through this neoliberal period. What came, if give us a little history, what came before neoliberalism in India? Uh, thank you for that question. So um, India, as we know, became sort of independent from British rule in 1947. And uh, what followed in the first sort of three decades uh, after our independence was a period of um, broadly state-led planning. Uh, so India was actually a uh, what's called a mixed economy in that, um, you know, it, uh, private firms operated in, in most sections of, of the market. Uh, but the state played a very critical role in the commanding heights of the economy, which meant that all of the, the sort of really critical sectors that were crucial to building an industrial base, those were... Um, highly regulated by the state. And the state had a vision for what they wanted the economy to look like. So the vision for the Indian economy was definitely industrialization. It's industrialization that makes the developed world what it is, right? Uh, If you you were to look at it through the eyes of an economist, um, what is it that separates the developed world from the developing world? Well, we both have capitalism. So uh, what, what makes the developed world rich and the developing world sort of trying to catch up to, to the level of the developed world, it's actually our levels of industrialization. Uh, the de- developed world became industrialized much more earlier when there was also less competition. They also had colonial uh, extraction to sort of uh, act as a, um, I mean, means of resources, labor, what have you. Uh, for the developing world, uh, of course, we we underwent that extraction, so we are starting out for in a in a much sort of worse position. We are all starting out much later when a lot of this uh, these industrialized countries already exist. So we are competing against them, and at this time, basically in the forties and the fifties, um, when a lot of countries became independent from colonial rule, uh, there was sort of this movement to adopt a more or less a, a, a closed stance towards international trade and to sort of um, consciously develop the domestic industry. Um, so it, again, if you go by a sort of the typical um, neoclassical comparative advantage view, it would be that, okay, developing countries in the 40s and 50s had a lot of labor and very little capital. So they focus on uh, producing and exporting labor-intensive goods because that's where our compar- comparative advantage lies. But there was enough good sense at that time to counter this neoclassical perspective and assert that, okay, no, if we do that, then we'll be stuck in this sort of low-value uh, set of commodities, largely agricultural commodities, actually, and that would not sort of it would not increase the GDP per capita. It would not allow for the economy to grow in a sort of holistic manner. And which is why we need to focus on industrialization. And where are the resources for that industrialization going to come from though? Um, And this is where agriculture comes in. This is what's called the classic agrarian question is that if if a country needs to industrialize uh, on its own, where is the money going to come from? Well, you can you can tax the rich uh, or you know sort of tax capital, um, the, and sort of the state can sort of redistribute that and directly enter industries or um, you know support the working class in a way that it it uh, uh, supports the industrialization process for private industry. 
And apart from that source of taxation, which agriculture is supposed to provide, agriculture also supposed to provide a cheap wage basket, essentially. Uh, so as a country industrializes, demand for labor in industry increases, and which means that the, the productivity in the agricultural sector has to also go up to support that increasing output employment that's happening in the urban industrial sphere. Um, so, so broadly, that was the the vision, at least on paper at that time, is that you have the development of industry supported by a domestic agriculture because we are close to international competition and we are not allowing foreign capital in. That's how uh, domestic industry was supposed to be uh, sort of uh, supplemented, and yeah, that was basically the first thirty years of after our independence picked up steam initially but lost steam in the 60s underwent a period of about 15 years of crisis after which there was sort of a resurgence of the private sector uh, state lost some of its power regulatory power as well as direct production power and that sort of brought us to the 80s when we had a, a burst of private sector led growth did not last long because the state tried to supplement it through uh, sort of welfare expenditures, etc. But they did not have the tax capacities to do that. And they kept building up debt. And then we had a foreign debt crisis in 1991. And that's what brought us to the current phase of neoliberalism. By the way, this, your story is very, very clear um, to me. Oh. So thank you for that. But I'm wondering what the relationship is between the foreign debt crisis and the neoliberal period. Right. I mean, I think it's the it's the story that's played out in in um, any number of countries, right? Uh, the 1980s is a period when, as I said, the the state kind of changes its attitude towards the private sector. Um, uh, uh, 1950s to 70s. It was the 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 perspective of the state was that the private sector has to remain highly regulated if we want it to do what it needs to do, which is to create a sustainable industrial base on which the rest of India's development can take place. Um, for for a number of reasons that did not happen, it had a lot to do with sort of creating um, you know a bureaucratic class that and. Uh, sort of the emergence of quasi-rents in the system uh, gave a lot of importance to sort of industrialists developing political connections with uh, with members of the state in order to gain access to licenses and quotas, etc., which would basically allow them to set up plants, expand production, etc. Um, so there were, you know, problems with that sort of state-led industrialization regime, but when sort of the Indian economy researches in the 1980s, um, there is a shift in the state's perspective. It's now much more accommodative of the private sector. And uh, uh, the role of the state itself is changing in the 1980s, moving away from productive investments. And increasingly, because those productive investments were in, in, a, in a span of 15 years did not lead to a transformation of the economy, which anyways is difficult in that shorter period of time. Uh, those productive investments instead gave way to the state getting into the role of governmentality, getting into the role of supporting individual citizens, workers, households, rather than getting into the actual bit, uh, work of producing things. And, and so, it essentially, I mean, on the one hand, it gives the private sector the signal that they don't have to worry about providing a living wage anymore because the state's going to help you do that or the state's going to take care of some end of that bargain and the private sector can sort of focus on um, profitability and increasing production. And on the, on the second, uh, the, the second aspect of this is that the state also loosened import restrictions. Remember, closed economy, we are not allowing in foreign capital, we're not exporting a whole bunch, we're also not importing a whole bunch, because we don't, we recently don't have foreign exchange, which meant that if any production house had to import any of their sort of inputs or intermediary products, they would have to actually get a specific, they, they would have to 
A, keep it within a certain quota that's fixed by the state. And uh, they would themselves have to produce enough exportables in order to be able to pay for those importables. So, I mean, there was a whole sort of calculus happening behind how to how to create the foreign exchange that we need to import the really necessary intermediary goods, you know, uh, R&D technologies that we need to set up our industry. All of that also starts to loosen somewhat in the 1980s. And the combination, essentially, of these two things, of the state's rising fiscal deficit and at the same time increasing imports. Um, uh, by the way, we had another crisis in the 1960s. Uh, so uh, 1991, after which India did become sort of neoliberal, uh, was not the first time that our state or that our economy underwent a major crisis. We had another crisis in the 60s. And throughout the 50s, 60s, 70s, there is sort of a very active involvement of, you know, the Rockefeller Center, the Ford Foundation, the IMF, the World Bank in the Indian economy. Recommendations accepted at various levels. But by the end of the 80s, this is, you know, there is also a lot of pressure sort of from the top elites within the Indian economy to sort of have a much larger expanded consumer basket because the the top elites of the Indian economy, you know, sort of following from our period of colonial colonialism, are they they are imitating the Western elites. So that thirty year period of state led industrialization, this top elite uh, class is uh, extremely sort of constrained in their consumption, they don't have a lot of options in India and you can't really import a lot of stuff either. So you are restricted to consuming a small number of, you know, luxury commodities. The only way that you can actually use luxury commodities is if you're personally flying out to Europe or the UK and bringing them back in your suitcase. And even even sort of that kind of behavior through its demonstration effect, it did create sort of some kind of unrest among the elite classes for this kind of notion that the Indian economy is backward and it, it does not have enough things for consumers. So there is that kind of unrest building as well. There is state's limited fiscal capacity and an increasing sort of um, import bill, which is culminating at the end of the 80s into this uh, into a foreign debt crisis, first of all, uh, which the IMF had to bail us out of. It was basically... It was something like we were left with about two months worth of foreign reserves in our in our coffers. And um, there is still a fair amount of debate about whether liberalization of our economy was inevitable or whether it was really necessary. There, there's still a fair amount of debate about this. Of course, what dominates today is the perspective that the pre-1991 Indian economy was just like complete, completely a mess. And we've only been able to grow after the neoliberal period. And uh, that sort of goes to show you the strength of the, the, the kind of homogeneity of opinion that comes to this, particularly in the mainstream political discourse. Um, our two biggest political parties uh, the Congress Party and the Bharatiya Janta Party. I won't compare them to the Democrats and the Republicans because it's honestly it's two different contexts. Mm-hmm. But you know, so our, our two big parties they they differ on a, on a number of issues, but they're fairly unanimous on this. It was the Congress Party that brought in neoliberal reforms, or that sort of saw the neoliberal reforms through that initial period. And currently, it's been the Bhatia Chanda Party that's taking them forward in their spirit and letter, et etc. Et yeah, again, that's that's all very clear. So I guess I want to I want to transition a little bit and talk about your project, your work, you decide to address or confront the the agrarian question in the context of neoliberalism and you you do this by going to to look at the way that agriculture has changed or not changed in a village called Sangli is that correct am i pronouncing it correctly right that's I, that's an alias but yes Sangli oh okay well well tell us a little bit about what you were hoping to find and what in fact you you found in this village absolutely so um 
the the agrarian question as i described uh, a little while ago is what is the role of agriculture in the larger industrialization process of a country right and i mean this is one variant of the agrarian question the agrarian question is actually sort of originating in marx and uh, then through uh, sort of kotsky and engels and etc etc but um, for developing countries in the 1940s and 50s uh, our agrarian question was how do we tap into our agriculture to support our industrialization now post 1991 the agrarian question is completely warped because as once we are fully integrated into the world market we are not able to protect our domestic industries in the same way that we were able to for the first 30 40 years after our independence right and at the same time so what what that basically means is that foreign capital can come in and set up production in india domestic firms in india can collaborate with that foreign capital they can import uh, whatever inputs technology they require if necessary domestic capital can also import the wage basket if it's cheaper outside so the role that special role that agriculture had in the industrialization process that goes away with neoliberalism and this is the theoretical argument that's been made by henry bernstein who's at soas and is sort of this really powerful way of reimagining the agrarian question today which is that the importance that agriculture had in the larger scheme of things has diminished and that reflects in the way agriculture is also treated as part of the economy by the state and by the private sector it is now a terrain that is to be taken up by corporate capital uh, it's not playing that instrumental sort of role anymore of necessarily providing a cheap wage, wage basket because america is actually producing cheaper food grains and you can simply import wheat from america if the indian wheat is too expensive for you from the point of view of the domestic capital right um so that's one element of the agrarian question is that it it sidelines agriculture from the growth process and we saw that for the from the mid 90s to the mid 2000s indian agriculture underwent a period of acute distress i mean i should also buttress this by by giving you a sort of perspective on the the state of agriculture itself so i mean in in the 1960s again through the intervention of the ford foundation and the rockefeller center and all of that green revolution techniques were adopted in india right 1960s indian economy undergoes a crisis we have food prices rising up because agricultural produ- productivity has taken a hit because of you know uh, weather conditions etc and so this was also a crisis that was exploited in the same way as the 1991 crisis but in the 60s crisis our approach to agriculture changed in that where previously there existed an approach that was grounded in community development so the idea that you know rural communities will be mobilized there will be a mobilization of labor and resources and in in some kind of a collectivized manner rural development will play out but from the bottom up guided by the state but essentially from the bottom up unfortunately the indian uh, political regime at that time just did not have the willingness to undertake this kind of project because it would have meant um you know uh, the legitimizing the power of the sort of large landlord classes the upper castes within villages who controlled most of the land etc so not wanting to shake that power balance indian state actually did not invest a lot of resources or energy into this bottom up uh, you know uh, collective rural development process which basically meant that by the 60s we were not doing too great in agriculture this was hampering our industrialization effort as well so green revolution techniques are introduced agriculture is quote unquote modernized right so you have these high yielding varieties of seeds you have the spread of electrification in some parts of the country for the first time which allows the use of uh, electrified pump sets and for for farmers to basically irrigate their crops uh rely on something apart from the monsoon right and then this is also supplemented with the use of fertilizers pesticides and the state 
starts uh, uh, you know uh, provides this systematic way of procuring these food grains as well and providing some kind of a price support so supported by the state there was a transformation in some parts of the country at least there was a transformation of how agriculture was actually happening it became as i said modernized and the idea or at least i mean in the again in the mainstream economics literature the expectation is that when you introduce this kind of um modernized techniques it also leads to a modernization of the relations of production so um once techniques become modernized agriculture will also become capitalist soon enough you know uh, so the, you you would expect to see over time the development of capitalist relations which essentially means that the the peasantry which is this you know really vast sort of uh, differentiated but also uh, not entirely differentiated this really vast group over time you would expect to see this group polarize into two broad classes the class of capitalist farmers who are left with um who who are who end up controlling all of the land and landless agricultural workers right who who were small initially and they lost access to land because they were not able to compete in this new sort of production techniques and the new market and so they end up becoming landless agricultural laborers this is what you would theoretically you would expect to see all right can i just as uh, you just interrupt for a sec that was the yeah. that was the idea that was the goal of sort of the rockefellers and so forth oh no i cannot actually attribute this to the rockefellers but this is what you would expect to happen generally yeah. like even even from sort of the, an political economy perspective so actually i mean this is the whole idea of differentiation that even folks like lenin etc talk about yeah i mean i guess i'm just wondering what you know what did the you know the imf or these these foundations expect what did they want do you think to see happen do you think mm. that they wanted to shrink the number of absolute workers overall workers who are in the agricultural sector so that these workers would would you know then find their way to industry you know sort of like what we see in the United States where you know at some point you have majority of Americans working in agriculture and now it's at a whole 3 or 4% is that was that sort of the goal you think okay i mean at one level the goal of the green revolution or you know what was really underlying the effort was at one level there was a recognition that if conditions do not improve if what you know what was considered to be agricultural backwardness if that is not corrected then indian peasantry is a volatile political force that could go the same way as china did so there was a very real threat that there could be a communist revolution in india and the way to prevent that is by actually modernizing agriculture increasing essentially the per capita incomes in agriculture and also i mean providing a pathway for people in agriculture to move out of it into the urban industrial sector so that the the sort of this political tension can be diffused in fact um the green revolution was called the green revolution in opposition to the red revolution of the soviets oh, wow okay um, so, so and, i didn't yeah. i didn't know i didn't know that that's really interesting but i i guess i guess my my question is and it makes sense what you're saying in terms of what you end up getting or what you'd expect to get is you know people who are basically dispossessed and who are landless peasants and then you have a few right. landlords who consolidate power what what ends up happening with agricultural output and then do large numbers of people actually leave agriculture and and go into um industry in the areas that the green revolution techniques were adopted uh, there was an initial increase in productivity and there was a healthy increase in productivity i mean in it actually flagged in the 70s but it picks up really in the 1980s there were two issues with this one that green revolution techniques were really only applicable to a very small section of the country because the kind of irrigation it required the kind of soil it required the crops that it was initially based on those could only be grown in a very small part of the country that changes from the late 1990s onwards when there is a vaster di- dispersion of green revolution techniques but that brings with it a second set of problems which are ecological 
which is that most green revolution techniques are very, very um, irrigation intensive. They use a lot of fertilizer and pesticide. All of this has a, a strong impact on the quality of the soil and the level of sort of groundwater, et cetera, right? And so what this means is that there are some parts of the country that have adopted green revolution techniques, like even though the ecological sort of conditions were totally opposed to that. And in these places, um, farmers have seen some incredibly, some, some terrible outcomes. The, the period of agrarian distress that I was talking about, which is late uh, mid 90s to mid 2000s, there were some parts of the country that sort of uh, where, you know, smaller farmers adopted these techniques based on, you know, taking loans either from private money lenders or from some kind of government agency, crops failing, them not being able to repay their loans. And what ended up happening was sort of this really massive spate of farmer suicides. I think that the number of farmer suicides from the 90s to today is something upwards of 200,000. And so basically, uh, on the one hand, that was the impact of the Green Revolution is that it wasn't really made for a widespread um, dissemination, but that's what was giving money in those initial areas. So everyone did adopt them. The government also sort of uh, facilitated this process and it ended up creating some terrible outcomes in some places. The second set of outcomes, which is, or the second set of things that you would expect, which is, is this leading to the creation of this, you know, landed class and uh, landless laborers who are then able to move out of agriculture and in fact su support that industrialization process. It did happen to some extent in that there is a movement out of the rural into the urban, but there are two problems. One, uh, the biggest problem actually is that there isn't any place to move into. Unfortunately, our industrialization never really picked up to a scale mm. that could mm. ab absorb excess labor from agriculture. And the neoliberalization of the economy in the early 90s really put paid to that process, particularly when it comes to creating good jobs. You know, from the 1980s onwards, the, the employment generation that the Indian economy has seen is largely informal, which means that workers who are in these informal jobs, they don't, they don't have job security. They don't know how long exactly they're going to be working for. They don't necessarily have a contract. They have almost no social security. They're not really bound by the government's legislations on what a good workplace needs to be like, what minimum wage should be like, etc. So a lot of... Um, peasants in the country actually face a choice between two alternatives. You have some land back in your village, right, which, which serves as a means of subsistence. That's really your support for when all else fails. So you don't want to let go of that because the opportunities that are available in the cities are too fragmented, fragile. They are too, you cannot trust that you will be able to keep this job. And also from the 1990s onwards, by the way, uh, India has underwent what is called a premature deindustrialization in that the, the size of the industrial sector is not really expanding anymore. Most of our growth and employment generation has come from the services sector. So we actually leapfrogged instead of going from agriculture to industry to services, we went straight from agriculture to services. And services sector by its nature does not produce either the same kind of productivity gains that industry does, or in fact, the same kind of formal employment that industry potentially can. So after the 90s, actually the biggest avenue of employment in India is construction. So most people who end up leaving their villages are actually working on construction sites across the country in highly unregulated, unsafe conditions with sort of really, really low uh, wage rates, which are mostly daily wage rates. So like the, the concept of a job which extends for a long period of time where you know what is your workplace from one day to the next, who your boss is from one day to the next, 
that doesn't exist for a large part of the country which is why they keep whatever resources they have in the rural which is why they don't let go of land because why would they that is what's going to come of use when you cannot count on your job yes the big question i have is why doesn't why doesn't the neoliberal project work in other words why does india experience premature deindustrialization so a combination of a couple of things for one thing so the the very idea of neoliberalism right is that capital can go wherever it wants to go international capital can go wherever it wants to go there are very few restrictions on its path it can set up shop wherever the the production conditions are the most feasible and a large part of those production conditions one, i mean infrastructure is a big part of it and the second chunk of it is having a pliable cheap labor market right that can contribute to production and essentially uh, create all of these uh, super normal profits or whatever if that is the starting point then where the indian state is left with is left is basically trying to attract foreign capital to your country to come set up shop set up production but how are you selling yourself you are saying okay we're not going to regulate you a whole bunch we're going to make our labor laws as flexible as possible you're not going to have a lot of trouble when it comes to hiring workers and firing workers if you're you don't enjoy these production conditions you can simply close shop and move to wherever else you want you know that that is the the essence of the neoliberal project is that you make conditions as conducive for foreign capital as possible you know for foreign capital to come in set up shop and give you and hope that some of that profit that they make is also going to seep into the local economy it's all not going to just go outside the borders of the country the the trouble for india is that our infrastructure is not the best in the developing world china is definitely much further ahead than us when it comes to that and our labor force has not experienced the kind of investment in education and healthcare that again say the chinese uh, labor force has witnessed so india is constantly having to compete with other countries in the developing world trying to sell itself as you know a great location for foreign capital to come and settle in when in fact we may not be able to provide the same kinds of conditions which in other countries have been built through extensive sort of state investment uh, either in the pre neoliberalism period or continuing through the neoliberal period right uh, especially for china the state continues to play this massive investment role the indian state does not have that capacity and especially post the neoliberal uh, post 1991 that capacity has further diminished especially for productive investment but even uh, the the sort of uh, governmentality functions those those have also sort of really become you know stopgap and uh, there is increasingly pressure to eliminate those as much as possible as well Uh, you you're asking the question of why the neoliberal pro- project doesn't work i really don't see how it could ever work for a country like india i guess that brings me to another question which is you know why is it that china is able to the state in china is able to continue to pour money into infrastructure and into education and into health and india is not able to do that I think that that has to do with our histories um the the history of I mean our 20th centuries how they were sort of radically different on the one hand the indian economy was i mean our planners were influenced very strongly by the soviet experience um to some extent by the chinese experience as well in the 1950s in that they recognized that a massive sort of resource mobilization or massive mobilization of labor can in fact take place in an economy like china in its in the 1950s uh which can sort of boost agricultural productivity lead to a redistribution of resources and sort of you know create the conditions for 
industrial growth. Similarly, with the, the Soviet Union, the uh, Jawaharlal Nehru, our first prime minister, had uh, uh, sort of had a deep appreciation for the Soviet planning model, and a lot of our centralized planning was, if not directly influenced, then definitely. I mean, the Soviet model was it was definitely in the backdrop as the way that a agricultural backward country can industrialize in the span of you know two decades so those were really seen as the successes the difference i think is that our quality was very very different always in the sense that from the time that we became independent the congress party that has that was in power for a good you know um three decades at least after we became independent congress party was basically built on the coalition of the landed elites and the the working classes peasants small traders etc so it was this really you know um it was a political coalition in which there was a lot of conflict of interest and the congress party would constantly have to try to maintain its position in the middle of this competing interest quagmire and they were really never able to take a stance one way or the other on paper a lot of the planning effort a lot of everything rested on as i said the mobilization of labor from the bottom up but they did not have the the wherewithal the resources to to actually limit the power of the landed elites as happened in china for example in the 1950s i'm not even going to the 1960s or the cultural revolution even in the 1950s the chinese economy was the the chinese sort of political leadership was able to redistribute land and effectively therefore curtail the the power of the landed elites those landed elites in india were never uh, disempowered in the same way which meant that the influence continued right and the continuation of the influence basically meant that agriculture as a sector was never tapped so it wasn't ever taxed the the larger landlords in agriculture never had to pay taxes and so that really constrained the ability of the indian state to generate resources similarly with business and particularly in the neoliberal period now we see this that because india i mean we are not the top of the game when it comes to infrastructure we are not the top of the game when it comes to skilled labor force what is it that we can do to attract capital we can reduce regulations for them we can reduce taxes for them that's the, literally the only way that we have to attract capital and what does all of this lead to and on top of this i should add the fact that our formal sector industrial sector has anyway diminished so much and the informal economy is what dominates now the informal economy is outside the bounds of the law it is not taxed it's not regulated which means that really the indian state is looking at a very very narrow fiscal base there is a very small section of the economy that actually pays income tax most of the re resources of the state are actually generated through indirect taxation which we know are extremely regressive in that poorer sections of society end up paying a larger share of their income via indirect taxes but that's really the only way that the state is left with to generate resources and and so it's it's this you know unique position of the indian state where we are a democratic polity which means that the state cannot afford to antagonize any class either the the uh not the classes at the top or the classes at the bottom really because all of them are instrumental to keeping you in power uh so being a democratic polity it means that so you cannot um i mean the working conditions and sort of everything for for the lower segments of the working classes are terrible but the state still has to do something in terms of welfare provisions to make sure that the situation is never explosive at the same time to keep capital in the country you have to cut them all sorts of slack there are thousands and thousands of rupee crores of rupees worth of bad debt that indian banks hold 
uh, that you know some small number of um, companies owe, but the the banks in the, the Indian state basically it just does not have the political uh, capabilities to to uh, enforce these companies to uh, essentially repay their debts or or to forfeit assets etc declare bankruptcy etc it, it really is the 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 limitations of the indian state on the one hand are a function of our political history the the kinds of class coalitions that the indian state is built on and that that sort of seeps into the way things play out today where um it just does not have the ability to discipline capital the way that other countries can or to and thankfully it also does not have the capability to repress labor completely i mean there is also sort of you know uh, there will be a pushback from people if if that does happen and so the the current government the bhartiya janata party government i don't know how much your uh, audience will know about the bhartiya janata party but it is uh, you know felt extremely right wing they have an idea of a hindu india and so uh, religious minorities particularly in the country have been extremely unsafe in the past uh, sort of eight years of the rule of bhartiya janata party etc so they they have a different political calculus right they are able to generate political support outside of the economy right a lot of their political support is this um it's it comes in through by fanning communal conflict which basically means that bhartiya janata party feels that they have some leeway to tinker around with the economy and correct some of the problems with the indian economy as they see them which is basically too much regulations too much support for working classes and so they have tried to cut away at some of this very very recently the the government actually passed these three farm laws that would essentially open up the farm sector to a lot more large capital domestic and foreign um would make it easier for large capital basically to acquire land to produce store and sell agricultural product and rightfully indian farmers organizations and essentially like a large scale farmers movement arose in opposition to these laws because they recognized that this is really you know um another stage in the subsumption of agriculture under capital like mm-hmm. so far productive techniques have been modernized but it's still the the peasant who continues to cultivate her land with these farm, farm laws um that would have changed completely right it would have been much easier for large companies to acquire land and essentially displace farmers and hire them back as agricultural laborers uh so there was a large political movement against this for that extended for about a year and a half and it basically entailed farmers um gherawing or surrounding the national capital in large numbers for literally months on end cutting off roads etc so it was a very very you know a live political protest that ultimately did succeed in you know forcing the government to take a step back and repeal these laws but the reason that the bhartiya janata party felt empowered enough to introduce these laws in the first place is because they think that their support is not entirely reliant on what they do to the economy so they they think that they can quote and quote correct the problems with the indian economy that arise out of the kinds of support that the state does give to various sections they can correct this because uh, people will like their hindutva message anyway thankfully there is still some opposition to that um but yeah that does seem to be part of their project it's also very clear i guess the the big question that i have is and i want you to correct me if i'm if i'm not if i mis, you know mistaken or if i if i didn't understand something in your story but it seems like after independence the state planning project wasn't particularly successful 
either in agriculture or in in industry and that there was a, sh a severe shortage of foreign capital in the country and therefore in advanced technologies and so there was sort of this failure and then there was a neoliberal period that we're living through now which is also a failure and i think i have a pretty good understanding of the neoclassical model of you know the story of how you develop how countries develop um mm -hmm. and what development looks like from their perspective what I'd love you to do, if you could, is to, you know, and I, Developing Economics is is the blog that I found your work on, which is a, as far as I understand, it's sort of a heterodox blog. Right. And it's, you know, I'm wondering what does your vision of development entail and look like? Hmm. That's... Uh, Difficult question, simply because there are very few real world examples remaining now to aspire towards. We honestly, we don't know how to get out of this uh, stage in our economy where, where capital is happy because it's I mean, labor is fairly cheap in India, but also the state is fairly conducive to creating conditions for capital. So capital is fairly happy. There is a small section of uh, professionals, uh, you know, urban professionals who are able to access the kinds of formal employment, uh, the very, very limited number of formal employment that capital does generate or which are actually the formal employment that's created by the state. Uh, so there is a small section of formal workers who are also happy with the system. But the vast majority of people who are working as informal workers and the vast major majority of people in agriculture, these sections basically are unable to see any kind of security when it comes to their livelihood circumstances, right? So really, I think that what we need is an economy that is able to um, generate dignified employment. Employment which you don't have to worry about losing it the next day, where you know how long exactly you're working for, for and your pay is uh, respectable, you know, and, and it increases over time. You have some kind of social security. As of now, our country has no pension system at all. So livelihood security, particularly old age, is non-existent. Um, and it's very clear that the, the neoliberal project is not going to be able to provide that. The state can provide it, but the state needs resources to be able to do so. Where are those resources going to come from? I mean, obviously, the state can't just create resources out of thin air. So it can only come from appropriately taxing the elites or it can come from the state directly providing a lot of these things itself. Um, so again, either way, I think the way out requires some kind of shielding from the intense competitive forces of foreign capital. So definitely re-evaluating the neoliberal project, I think, is a big part of this. But another part of this is re-evaluating the political consensus on which, you know, our, our, uh, the public sector rests. Um, and again, I keep bringing this up, but this is important. We need to, in India, we need to go back to what kind of consensus we created at the time of independence and why it did not work out. Why keeping the elites in that position and in fact, keep placating them, why that is not a solution either. And in fact, that ends up curtailing a lot of the efforts that you try to take towards a 
more equitable society so a lot so the the elites that i'm talking about in india they're not just economic elites they're also so the indian economy for for millennia has been shaped by the caste system right the caste system is this sort of division of labor of society very broadly but which is also codified in religious texts your birth determines your caste position which then determines what work you do in life and castes are maintained through endogamy you one caste doesn't marry into another so you only marry within your caste group you only eat food with your caste group you only so your your social world is restricted to your specific class group a caste group and your caste group determines you know your access to resources what you can actually become in life what you can even dream of becoming in life etc and and so obviously land ownership is also deeply tied with this and just generally social networks etc as well so one of the other big failures of the indian state is that after independence the way that sort of you know urban industrial development happened and the way that the state treated it not only did it not disempower the landed elites it also did nothing to disempower the caste system which basically means that castes that were at the top of the hierarchy before independence and sort of you know in the in the pre capitalist period those same castes were in the the best position to take advantage of the best jobs both in the public sector and in the private sector they were in the best position to also access resources access credit etc to be able to set up businesses um and and the castes that were at the very bottom of this hierarchy were basically left there itself their position changed from you know uh having a sort of socially mandated role of okay you will have to be an agricultural landless laborer to that's what now the free market makes them do because they don't have quote unquote endowments or access to resources generationally they also don't have access to the kind of social and cultural capital that it takes to crack sort of you know educational qualifications that can land you the really good jobs so what that means is that the the caste hierarchy has become ossified within our economy as well within the capitalist economy and the state has not been able to do anything meaningful to tackle that either if i can just think if i can just think just yeah. to be clear you're saying that the it's the the market is actually enforcing these caste roles now yeah yeah i think that now it's very much the market that's enforcing these caste rules right. uh, so upper caste where earlier it was the threat of violence directly mm-hmm. that prevented people from stepping out of the bounds of their caste norms mm-hmm. now it's the market that does it because uh, now inequality is naturalized right through that distribution of resources Mm-hmm. and obviously any kind of resource redistribution is ruled out because of the kind of political coalition that we started out with where you cannot disempower the high caste land elites so their privilege continues and the lack of access also continues right right so it, it is so interesting yeah. but but i guess what i am thinking about as you're as you're speaking is that you know, there's so many so many challenges right like you need to get access yeah. to capital you need to do something about the landed elite you need to be able to do something about the caste system which hasn't withered away but i'm i'm also thinking that even if you were to even if the state were were willing to take those challenges on it seems to me to go back to the earlier part of the conversation you were saying that by the 1980s and certainly by the 90s the elite in india had really come to embrace not just accept but embrace neoliberalism and globalization it seems to me again that the problem is is the lack not the problem one of the major problems is that you you also lack a model not you but right. we there so right. what's behind the failure there's so many smart people thinking about this stuff what's behind the failure of an alternative model do you think you're really asking me the tough questions now okay so you know coming from the perspective of political economy of development there are countries right that have been able to 
uh, industrialize, develop, change the 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 makeup of the economy. The countries that have gone from being primarily agriculture, agricultural to primarily industrial, right? Late industrialized, I'm talking about. So, Soviet Union, China, but also Japan, Korea, Taiwan, right? What are some things that these countries have in common? I mean, very different polities, yes, but some things that these countries and their experiences have in common, I would say two main things. One is the ability to discipline the capitalist class is something that, or, or I mean, and it, it obviously, it ranges. These, these are very different polities, but even Korea, a large part of its success can be attributed to the fact that it was able to discipline its capitalist classes in a way. And I mean, that discipline also only worked because Japan was able to provide Korean capital with avenues of marketing that Japanese firms were actually withdrawing from. And so they allowed Korean capital to take in that space. So that discipline also only works when capital recognizes that it's in their best interest to do so. In, in India, that situation did not work out, right? And uh, I think one of your previous speakers was Vivek Chibber, and he has made this point fairly strongly in his book, Locked in Place, right? That uh, India, Korea start out from a fairly similar place in the 1950s, but Korea is able to do what it did because it was able to discipline its capital and because capital was willing to be disciplined because they recognized the benefits that came from it. Whereas Indian capital, uh, you had a state that wanted to discipline it, but we did not have those access of uh, avenues of marketing, which meant that our marketing channels were restricted to a domestic market, which in, in itself was limited because people had low incomes or low purchasing powers, et cetera, et cetera. So that's one important part of the story is the right conditions in which even capital is willing to be disciplined. And those conditions are really, those cannot be universalized, right? So I think one part of the story really is that industrialization and development is not the norm for developing countries by any means. It's not the inevitable, it's really the exception. And this is something that a lot of, um, folks in in political economy and anthropology are now coming to recognize is that industrialization is the exception that we have to work towards it's it's not it's not like if we keep doing the right thing we'll necessarily become industrialized so that's one part of the story the second part of the story is now coming back to the agrarian question all of the countries that did transition from being primarily agricultural to primarily industrial the one thing that binds them, and, and this goes to all of the early industrializers as well, by the way, this goes to England, to the US, to Germany, et cetera, et cetera. Their industrialization projects were fueled by colonialism, yes, but also by tapping domestic agriculture to fund industry, to provide a cheap wage basket, to provide excess labor, um, also to provide surplus that can be refueled as capital for industry. And uh, particularly the provision of a cheap wage basket and excess labor, this is also something that we see in Soviet Union and China, in Korea, in Taiwan, in Japan. It, I mean, and again, this is intuitive because if you don't have access to colonial extracts, and obviously, I mean, the countries that were able to do so also took away resources from us and all of that. So our agriculture is definitely in a much weaker position, but still for us, what are the avenues left to extract resources? It is now what some people call internal colonialism. So any kind of industrialization project that we're looking at, it will necessarily have to be one part of the economy prospering at the cost of the other part of the economy. And that is, that, that is really the political cost of industrialization of development. And that is a cost that's difficult to bear if you are a de bourgeois democracy like India, right? 
which is why none of the other countries that industrialized were democracies. And so this is really where the difficult questions start to come up is when we recognize that this is not a project in which everyone wins. So you have to create losers. And then it becomes a question of who are going to be the losers in this particular context. Who are you willing to disempower and who are you willing to, who, whose um, priorities and needs can be suppressed for the shorter term in order to have that longer term sort of, you know, better outcome. And, and these are incredibly political questions, contentious questions. Thank you.